podcast one production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. So listen now as I talk with Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia. Scott Morrison is the Prime Minister of Australia, which is an amazing achievement. Uh, He was elected as the member for Cook in 2007, and then he quickly rose up through the ranks into the shadow ministry and then became the Minister for Immigration in the Abbott government, where he famously stopped the boats through Operation Sovereign Borders. He then moved sideways, I suppose you'd describe it, to Social Security, where he wasn't there long, and then emerged as the Treasurer and in 2018 became the Prime Minister of Australia, which is an amazing thing in anybody's life. Now, he and I first met um, at a lunch in the parliamentary uh, members and guests dining room with Bruce Baird long before you were the member for Cook, obviously, because Bruce was the member for Cook. Yeah. You were head of Tourism Australia. No, no, it was even before that. It was uh, it was back in, I think, in about 1996 or seven. Bruce himself hadn't gone back Oh, uh, right. Into Parliament at that point. So he was TTF or something? Yeah, he was at Tourism Council Australia and he and I were working together at the time and uh, I'd been in the tourism industry for, for a while and Bruce re- recruited me there and uh, I'd always had a, a very um, big admiration for Bruce from, you know, his time as a, uh, as a state politician. Justly held. He, he was an outstanding transport minister in New South Wales and uh, and of course his role in the Sydney Olympics, which, you know, as history has has judged him very, very favourably and <laughs> rightly. Um, he w- really w- did an extraordinary job on that. But no, no, he, he, we would come down to Canberra and talk to people about tourism and uh, we met on that occasion. So, gosh, Christopher, that's going back how long? That's 23 years. That's a long time ago. Mm. Do you remember Bruce's wonderful story about when he was trying to get the Olympics for Sydney and... He had to um, look after, host all these visiting There were many stories and some of them were true. <laughs> yes. I, don't, I think this one could have been true because <laughs> there might have been witnesses to it because there was a man from Nigeria, I think. Yeah, the investigation's still pending. Who came uh, to the New South Wales State Parliament House in all of his flowing robes, as yes. Nigerians have. He was the delegate from Nigeria. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Nigeria because I think they're a Commonwealth country. I'm mm. sure they are. And... As was the habit mm. in Nigeria, as Bruce and the man were walking around mm. New South Wales State Parliament, the man took Bruce's hand. Yes, yes, he did tell me this story. <laughs> and held yeah. his hand. It's very cultural. Yeah. And like, very cultural. Yeah. And Bruce couldn't, of course, <laughs> sort of shake off his hand because we needed his vote. So Bruce walked around New South Wales State Parliament holding this large man's hand yes. with these long, fabulous flowing robes yeah. and got a few glances from his colleagues. But, well, of course, it is Sydney, so. Yeah, well, but uh, it is a very cultural. It's a, there's a similar practice, actually, in the Pacific. So Yeah, it's true. But Bruce was very aware of that and, it, you know, he... 
He's, he's a, a dear man. friend of us both, and um, he, he made a great contribution to public life. And um, he did. He's been a dear friend of mine for most of my life, and uh, a great mentor too. Back then, in must have been the mid nineteen nineties. Did mm. you think then that you might end up as the member for Cook and the Prime Minister of Australia? Uh, probably not. You were too focused on my exhilarating conversation. <laughs> well, at that time, <laughs> you know, throughout all my working life. And John Howard summed it up best on, on one occasion when I went to work for the New South Wales Division of the Liberal Party. He said, always just focus on doing the job you've mm. got well. Good advice. And that's always been my my uh, focus. Your motto, your mantra. And then whatever comes next, comes next. Mm. Brendan Nelson told me that when I was the, made the Parliamentary Secretary for Social Security. Yeah. Because you'd be surprised to hear that I hadn't fought my way uh. through tooth and claw to get to the mm. social parliamentary secretary for social security. Mm. But John Howard, in his infinite wisdom, gave me that as my first job off the back bench. And um, I went to see Brendan Nelson, who'd been the former parliamentary secretary for social security years mm. before, and said, you know, what do you think I should do? Because mm. it's not exactly my area of mm. expertise. Mm. And he said, you should do this job as though it was the only job you've ever wanted in politics. Mm. And if you do that, the prime minister will think, Good. He's he's taken that job. He's done a good job with it. I'll give him another one and then another one and another one. And that was the first time anyone gave me that advice and I mm. took it. But that is good advice. I mean, in public life, and we've both been around it for a while and now you're, you know, um, retired from that service, but whatever job you get to do is a, is a great privilege. It's true. And you become quickly aware of that in whatever task you've been assigned. I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, your successor... James. Uh, Linda, Linda Reynolds. Oh, Linda Reynolds. You James Stevens is stirred and Linda <laughs> Reynolds in defence, yep. Linda did an outstanding job when I took her into the, the job of being uh, the assistant minister dealing with emergency services. Yeah. And the job she did particularly in responding to what had been a series of dreadful natural disasters, whether it was the floods up in North Queensland or the bushfires down in Tasmania, mm. She did an outstanding job and she, you know, she really demonstrated what she could do. Mm. And so it wasn't a hard call uh, when it came up. to uh, who to promote. And of course, she was, you know, a, a brigadier in the Army Reserve and, and right. she had talent experience in these areas. So, you know, we've, we've got a great successor. She's you, a very you competent and capable woman. There's no doubt about that. And as you, I think she was the first female brigadier in the Army Reserve. That's actually. correct. Which is an achievement all in and itself. And the second female defence minister after our after friend Maurice. Maurice Payne. Yes, who's now in foreign affairs and doing a wonderful job. Mm. The Pacific has actually been quite a big part of your life, whether it's the Pacific step up or mm. your first visits as Prime Minister overseas mm. were mm. to the Pacific. And originally, of course, your intention was to be a missionary in the South Pacific when you were sort of an 18, 19-year-old mm. callow youth mm. thinking about your future. And your father who was a policeman, mm. convinced you that, that might, your, your talents might be used better elsewhere. Is that well, right? Well, he, he thought I should get a job and uh, <laughs> pay my bills and look after my new wife. And, and uh, my father's a very traditional man, so that was his strong advice. But ever since I was a kid, when I was very young, my parents in their holidays used to go and work on cruise ships. Uh, which were singers or yeah, actually they they, right? they were because really? they were involved in amateur musical Golly, productions. Is that right, I've always wanted to do something like that. You'd be a hit, Christopher. I would you, actually. You, you would, I was you, singing before you got here. <laughs> uh, I'm just getting that image out <laughs> of my head. And anyway, so we would go, and they also used to run all the children's programs on on, right? on the ships. And so 
oftentimes in our school holidays, we'd sort of be bundled off and on to what was first the Schotter Rustavelli, which was a Russian cruise ship, wow. which was doing the uh, the rounds. As you know, these days it's you know all the, the Pacific Princess or what whatever yeah. the other ones are, Crystal Palace, and all so of them. On. They are you know quite different to those old little rust, rusty boats we used to get around in. And uh, that was that was the Russian one, and they it was trans tours who used to run those ships. And then there was the next one, which was the Marco Polo, which was a Chinese ship. And anyway, we used to cruise around the Pacific and uh, my brother and I used to get up to all sorts of mischief and various things. But it was my first engagement with the Pacific and the first time I ever visited there, it never left me. Just the sense of uh, of family and welcome and belonging was They're something... very generous people. Never left me mm. and have loved it ever since I've been a kid and I've always felt a deep connection with the people of the Pacific. And I think as, and as an Australian, it's our part of the world. It's, when I say family which in Fijian is Favale or in Polynesian it's Whanau or any of these, um, and particularly in Māori, these are, these are real connections and I think Australia has a special relationship with the Pacific. One of, uh, we have a responsibility but it's equally it's, it's, it's one of peers as well. And uh, so it's a great thrill now as Prime Minister to be able to be leading that Step Up initiative. And we'll talk about all that in a second, mm. but before we do that, I should let you know that when I was fantasising about what jobs I might have post-politics, not recently, but years ago, <laughs> and thinking I might actually not be qualified for anything, yeah. I thought the two jobs that I could do yeah. would be an information officer at the airport Yeah. and I could wear one of those red jackets with an eye on the, pa- on the pocket. Was that the attraction? No. <laughs> Part of the attraction because the second job was yeah. being one of those dancers on a cruise ship <laughs> who wear, now this is a true story, who yeah. wear yellow jackets and because there's a lot more women who live to old age than men, yes. the women go on these cruises yes, 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 and yes, yes. they want to dance. <laughs> and again, of course there aren't the... enough men. So there's, there's these men who wear these yellow jackets and they sort of, because they're in the yellow jacket, people yeah. think, oh, that's somebody I can go and ask to dance with and then they dance with these cruise ship dance. I thought, well, I could do that or I could do the information job. Well, there's still time. (laughs) There is, you know. (laughs) And at 52, today actually. It's all ahead of you. I could do a number of different things. I could end up doing both of those jobs as well. But whatever it is, it's going to involve wearing some sort of coloured jacket. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Well, I never wanted to go into the military where the uniforms are kind of ever-present, so maybe that was the next best thing. Who knows? But anyway, we're being... (laughs) We digress. We digress. (laughs) We have been tangentially distracted because uh, it started with your initial views about wanting to be a missionary in the South Pacific and your Mm. dad convinced you that wasn't a very good idea because you needed to pay your bills, which Jenny would have been particularly pleased about. We were just recently married. I was 21 and Jenny had just turned 22. Wow. But I do think it's had a big impact on your role as Prime Minister Mm. in that Pacific step up, which you and I did together Mm. in many respects. Yeah, true. When I became Minister for Defence and you became the Prime Minister, we discovered that there had been quite a lot of work being done on the Pacific step Mm. up. Mm. But we kind of turbocharged it, did. got it out there, and it's now many layered, mm. and it's really important for Australia, but also for the Pacific. Yeah. And my question to you is: in your conversations and travels already through the Pacific, mm. has this been a point of real conversation with the Pacific leaders? Are they really pleased that Australia is actually putting its money where its mouth is, and it's not not just rhetoric, but actually outcomes? Well, not only in the Pacific. Throughout the Indo-Pacific, for that yeah. matter, and uh, whether it's in China or whether it's uh, in the United States or in the UK, France, uh, Japan, India, Australia's relationship with the Pacific, and I'd include New Zealand as a partner in that exercise because they've engaged on a very similar program at the same time. So yeah. that's a, it's a you know those two things synchronise well. 
it's drawn a lot of attention and a lot of appreciation for one simple reason, in, and that's it's genuine. It's it's authentic. It's it's for real. Australia, as, as we both know, has had a long and positive association with Pacific, whether it's PNG or Fiji or, or anywhere else. Um, but the money has flowed, but there have been, you know, times during those relationships where we've been a bit estranged. And the questions have been asked about, um, you know, how tight that relationship is. Now, it's not just the money we're investing and the projects we're involved in or the defence partnerships that we have. It's the level of leader-level engagement, which has been what I've sought to, to bring to this. As, as Prime Minister, I'm the first Prime Minister to have a bilateral visit to Fiji. Is that right? And that's right. First one to do... First one ever. The first one ever. And the first one ever to, to do that in Vanuatu. You know, my recent meeting with the Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Prime Minister Sogavare. These... This high level, sort of leader level engagement, says we're we're peers. It says we're we're family. It we're says we're, with respect. we are we are together in dealing with the challenges. And they and, and there are many challenges they have in the Pacific, and not just economic challenges, but obviously uh, challenges in climate. And they're looking for our partnership on these things, and and they're receiving it. But uh, they're like any other country. They're small countries, but they're like any other country in the Indo Pacific. They just want to be themselves. They want to run their own countries. They want to determine their own future. They deal in economies which uh, are not obviously uh, of a scale as, as ours is, mm. but that doesn't mean that they can't find the development path for themselves, which provides a future for their, for their way of life. So it's exciting to see that happening. I mean, for example, when I was in, in Solomon Islands recently, the Ramsey operation, which went over many, many years going mm. back to the mid-2000s, mm. I mean, this was at a time when Solomon Islands was in deep crisis. Basically, law and order and civility had completely fallen away. And this was a country that had become a failed state. And through Ramsey, which Australia led, and through not just our Defence Forces, but in particular through our AFP and, and, and those officers, we've rebuilt the Solomon Islands uh, uh, Royal Constabulary. Mm-hmm. And we're doubling down, though, in the Solomon Islands with yeah, the we are. undersea cable from we are. Solomons to PNG, linking, linking those two countries, which mm. I read recently is projected to create about 400,000 new jobs across the South Pacific by 2040. Yeah. It's amazing. That and the electrification project up in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. I mean, this is these are people, nation-transforming projects, and mm. it's, a, it's a great thrill to be part of it. Your first visit after... Being being re-elected as prime minister mm. was a holiday to Fiji. Yeah, we'd, we've been there many times. Oh, well, after the first official visit we made on to Solomon's on the way to the UK, right. um, so uh, we did take a break after the after the election, and we certainly needed one. From the day I became prime minister, it was very much uh, it was yeah. game on, uh, and we worked very hard. But it's that fact that you took your holiday in Fiji. Yeah. Which we've done many times. Proves yeah. that it's, you know, being vivale is something genuine to you. Oh, yeah. It's not about, I have to do this, the Pacific step up is a ticking the box exercise. Yeah. You know, you've chosen to actually prove yeah. that you're genuine about the friendship, which mm. is difficult for us as a country because we are a behemoth in the region. Yeah. And like the US is a behemoth in the world, mm. it's sometimes hard, I think, for the Americans not to sound patronising. They don't want to sound patronising. No. They're so much bigger than everybody else. Yeah that it's difficult in the Pacific for Australia not to sound like we're coming to sort of save people. Yeah, yeah. But what you're trying to convey, and I think you've conveyed very successfully in the last 12 months, is that we're actually vivale, we're a family. It's family, it's just family being the family. So it's, before we leave international affairs, mm. the, I mean, domestic 
portfolios were your really um, bread and butter. Obviously, mm. immigration has a significant mm. element in terms of dealing with other countries, but mm. it's about protecting our borders. And being the Prime Minister mm. on the world stage is different to every other role in the Cabinet. Yeah. You know, everyone has their job. When I was Defence Minister, my yeah. job was to deliver the $200 billion build-up on our military mm. capability and the Social Security Minister's job is to make mm. sure that everyone's being properly looked after and being paid what they should be paid, etc. Yeah. Do you enjoy the foreign policy side of being Prime Minister? Well, it's a great opportunity to basically take Australia's values to the world mm. and to see how Australia's values can be applied to dealing with some of the big challenges that the world faces. So, you know, one of those values is respect for each other. And in the Indo-Pacific region, what do all the countries want? They just want to be themselves. They want to have their own sovereign nations and be independent and make their own choices about their future. And I think it's uniquely, well, perhaps not a uniquely, but it is a clear Australian value that you would respect that. You'd respect that of your neighbour and in the same way you're respected of the country that's alongside you. And that's the value I try to take into those in a relationship. It's not about trying to get them to pick our side or someone else's side. It's about, okay, this is who you are. This is what you're about. I respect that. I'd ask you to respect who we are and what we're about. And mm. we all sort of share this part of the world. Um, so I'm sure we can find quite constructive ways to get on together, protect our collective independence, I suppose, which we've particularly seen through the success of ASEAN, mm. which I think is a real model uh, for how in this part of the world nations live happily and prosperously together and, uh, and playing that out. But we'll always be an expression of our values as a country and it's the Prime Minister's job to do that as it is the Foreign Affairs Minister and the Minister of Defence in their respective fields. There's so a lot more Foreign Affairs in Defence than I'd ever expected. Actually. Well, there is, and actually in immigration particularly there was as, as well. But, um, but again, it was more predominantly arranged about in preserving the integrity of our immigration system. Mm. But as Prime Minister, that is a great privilege. And you're very conscious that it's not you personally sitting in that chair at the G20 or, you know, meeting the Queen or the President or whoever it is you're meeting with. Uh, it's you're, you're there for Australia. You're representing Australia. That's right. right. I wouldn't be in that chair <laughs> if it were not for Australia, and that's the basis on which you're representing your country. It's something I used to try and remind people when they said that the Liberal Party hadn't treated them well and they were going to think about crossing the floor or sitting mm. as independents or whatever it was, mm. and they used to say, but actually you wouldn't have ever been elected to Parliament if mm. you hadn't been the Liberal candidate for that particular seat. This is true. It's important to remember where you come from. Well, it is. That's that's very true. So, look, it's a demanding part of the job because of mm. the travel. Um, but I, I got to tell you, um, Jenny's involvement with me on that has been a, a, a real, a real blessing. She's, uh, we were at the G twenty up in Osaka, and uh, we would. Jenny had been with the Partners Program during the course of the day, and you know she, you know she made quite a hit of herself because she's just a natural sort of person that gets on with everybody. And so we went to the sort of cocktails before um, the evening dinner, which Prime Minister Abbe was putting on, which was a very you know, impressive affair. Jenny was introducing me to people. <laughs> and their partners were going, oh, this is Jenny. You've met Jenny. Jenny's lovely. Now her, pr- her husband happens to be the Prime Minister of Australia, but you must meet Jenny. Exactly. <laughs> well, Jenny has been a great hit. Yeah. And I'm sure she'd be horrified to think anybody was talking about her actually she as a would great be. hit. I know her well and you I do. like her very much. But Jenny has been a great hit. And look, I don't think anybody was expecting Jenny. Like, I mean, you had a profile as the treasurer. Yeah. Carolyn and Jenny would have had similar 
profiles, which are low profiles and happily, by choice, by choice, choice and happily choice. so. And then she was quite a surprise package to the Australian public. She's kind of burst onto the scene because yeah. she was suddenly the Prime Minister's wife. Yeah. But she's so honest and energetic and tra- transparent. Yeah, and she's all of those things. There's no airs and graces. Everyone's just warm to her. The thing about Jenna, she just loves people. She can't help but demonstrate that. But there's also been, as, as she's been in the role a bit longer, as I have also, she's finding her voice on a couple of things, but not in a preachy sort of way. Mm. She just, you know, Jen will go, she'll get invited to events and there'll be no media or anything like that. And she'll turn up, she'll, you know, and just walk in and they'll go, well, who are you? And she'll go, oh, I'd, be, I'd be Mrs. <laughs> Jenny, Morrison. Jenny Morrison. I think my name's there. And she, <laughs> and she go and sort of sit there quietly and all the rest of it. But in causes that are particularly affecting women mm. and dealing, you know, around issues like mental health and things mm. like this and, mm. and uh, women who've had miscarriages and uh, deal with uh, uh, stillborn infants. Mm-hmm. She's just got a, a world of compassion within her and she just has a way of making people feel comforted. It's mm. a real gift. It is um, definitely a gift. And I, I wouldn't speak for Jenny and I'm sure you wouldn't either, but the, the impression I get is that she thinks that she's basically lending yeah. her husband to the nation for a while. Pretty much. <laughs> which she thinks is... You know, that's been her destiny to do that and she's Uh, quite looking forward to the day when she will be anonymous again somewhere in a community, probably in the Shire. She said something beautiful when we were at the the Hillsong Conference a few weeks ago and uh, they are asking about this and she goes, well, look, Scott chose this and I chose him. Yeah. And I I thought that was a lovely thing to say. Yeah, no, no, she's she's a great asset and I'm I'm sure she'll keep, people will keep warming to her. The international stage is something you've done for the last sort of 12 months, yeah. uh, but you focused very much domestically because obviously you had a job to do when you became the Prime Minister in that week in August. But I wonder whether now that you've got three years, if you've got any particular sort of international plans for Australia or is it just the job that I'm seeing already, which is, you know, your WhatsApp um, description is getting on with it. Yes, that's true. Uh, which has always been your WhatsApp description. And yep, yep. I assume that in international affairs, do you have a, a sort of vision plan for the Indo-Pacific or is it well, just it is about getting on with it? It is about independence and sovereignty. That's I think that's the key. And and having a, a network of relationships that we just keep investing in both personally as, a, as the leader and right throughout you know, the system, whether it's in defence, uh, whether it's in uh, development assistance, Econ- the economy, trade, all of these things. I mean, I'll be up in Vietnam shortly. That's a, a priority I've put on that relationship. Fascinating uh, changes there. Yeah, it is. And um, India as well. I've, I've had uh, tremendous engagements with Narendra Modi. Um, we had we were sitting at that dinner I was just talking, telling you about up in Osaka and we took a photo, both of us together, and uh, it, you know, I broke the internet. I mean, you take a photo <laughs> with, with, with Modi and it usually does that, but even he was surprised. But do you remember <laughs> when he came to the House of Representatives? Oh, and was uh, a rock star. And yeah. everyone kept applauding all the time. Yeah. And we didn't know what to do because <laughs> no one really applauds in the House of Representatives. No, but he, he has a charisma which most politicians uh, would envy. And, uh, you know, in his recent campaign, and, and uh, Jocko Wadodo did the same thing, they used holograms because they're such enormous countries right? to campaign in over the course of the election. So um, he pioneered the hologram technology. I remember he told me about it some years ago. I was an immigration minister and we're sitting together at a dinner and he told me how he'd done it. And then the President Wadodo had heard about this and he, he slyly told me when I met him just over a year ago, he said, oh, I'm going to give this a crack. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't exactly put it like that. but um, And then he did. 
So anyway, they're interesting people. But the point to give I question, don't think you'd get away with that in Australia. Well, I don't think you need to, to be honest. <laughs> we can get about the country and, and, and get to most events. But um, the point about is the stability it's of a bit the of a region. It's Leia moment having a hologram, isn't it? I think so. You'd need to get those things <laughs> on your ears. I'll leave that to you. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> it's a bit fascinated by Princess Leia's hair <laughs> things. Anyway. Anyway, back to the stability of the Indo-Pacific yeah, region. It's probably more important. But it's, stability is the key in managing those big relationships between the United States and China. This is the most complex period of time, I think, for Australia to manage that relationship going back generations. And so that obviously has a big demand, and rightly so, on, on my attention and of the National Security Committee. Uh, and you know, we're, we're focused on this on a daily basis. But more broadly than that, on, on the international sphere, the issue of global environmental advocacy... There's been a lot of talk about, you know, the, the issues around changing climate and something for some time, and that's all important. We're all taking action on climate change. That agenda has been argued, done, and we're taking action. The jury's in there. Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, we can we don't need to have these ideological-type discussions. The action will speak for itself, and it's all worthwhile doing. But uh, particularly when it comes to issues of oceans, plastics in the oceans, it's something that I'm putting a heavy focus on. Mm. Australians are basically a coastal people, when you look at the distribution of our population. Mm-hmm. And we all understand the importance of our, our ocean ecology, whether it's how mangroves work or how um, you know our reefs are formed and all of this. And we're very conscious of it and we're very proud of it and we want to take care of it. And when I learned that 12% of plastics in Australia are recycled, 12%, 21% of what you put in that tub in your kitchen... I just what happens to the rest of it? It goes into landfall. It goes uh, up on shipping barges up into Asia. And in, in those cases, it can find itself in rivers and end up in those plastic islands floating around the Pacific. Wow. And I reckon this has been a massive con. I mean, here we all are thinking, thinking we're, we're being right wonderful thing. environmental citizens, taking mm. our you know, pet bottles and putting them in the right little tub there, patting ourselves on the back, feeling all warm while we go and get ourselves another cup of tea or something. And it turns out this stuff's bobbing around in the ocean. Now, we've got to change that. We've got to change that number. And I had a great meeting last week with the premiers and chief ministers, and we agreed that we would nominate a date to ban all export of those types of recycled materials and then have a timetable for achieving that and then building up the recycling capability of Australia at a state level, because that's where this is done, and doing it on a commercially viable basis. And so you have the pull through so, you know, you can make Asheville out of plastic bags. I think I saw you this morning we were holding doing up that. a small square, which yes, was 80%, 83%. 83%. See, I listened to what you say. There you go. 83% recycled. I mean, one quarter of uh, the asphalt that's produced for Sydney roads is done at that facility. Where do they do? Oh, they do that in, in, in Sydney. Western Sydney, yeah. yeah right. um, and a lot of that was going out on, um, on the roads that are being built right now under our $100 billion program over the next 10 years. So I think that is an area where Australia and where I want to see a step up a lot more in global advocacy on these issues. And it's not about wearing bracelets and, you know, rubber bands or whatever it is. It's well, I've ad- never been a bracelet wearer. Uh, sorry? I've never been yeah, a bracelet look, I mean, wearer. Is it, advocacy, I think, has to get a lot less shouty and a lot more practical. Outcomes. So, so what are we going to do about it? Well, you know, we've got to make sure that we're investing in the science and research of what you can t- turn this waste into. Now, it can be turned, of course, into you know, 
plastics which can then be used in construction. It can be used in walls. It can be used in park benches. It can be used in road base. It can be used in asphalt. It can be um, with landfill, particularly with bio-waste. It can be generating energy. Sure. Um, and so all of this is stuff we can practically do. And for every 10,000 of waste that we put it away from landfill, that's tonne of waste that we put away from landfill, it creates six jobs. Is that right? That's and right. I assume that if Australia becomes the world leader in mm. recycling of this kind... Which I want us to be. It could be very, very lucrative. Massive. Mm. I mean, it's like, it's like the ageing of the population. You were around the policy debate for a very long time. And we used to talk about the ageing of population in this country like it was some sort of disease. Yeah, which was crazy. It, but, but, Australians are living longer because of pharmaceuticals and good health care. This strikes me as a good thing. Um, <laughs> well, especially for us. Exactly. Now we're, that we're both 50. Are you 50 you, yet? Yes, I am. I'm Just. 51. So you're living longer. This is not a problem. I'm 52 today. Did I mention it was my birthday? You did. Happy yeah. birthday. There you go. Happy birthday. I won't be singing. Living longer is a good thing it's for a good all thing, of us. But that means it does require further investment in your aged care, your in-home aged care places, the delivery of services, technology, all of these things. And we're very good at this in Australia, and I, I agree that we've got to get more funding into in-home in-home aged care places, and we've put 40,000 extra places in just over the last couple of years, and I'm keen to do more. But we can take these services as we are in China or in Japan or in sure. many other places and become either the runner of these facilities, which we can do under the China-Australia Free Trade yep. Agreement, or what we are seeing more of is we're becoming the trainers and the establishers of these facilities in other countries. And it's, it's important services export. So the challenges that we deal with well in Australia, whether it's that or whether it's recycling waste or any of these other things, actually are quite lucrative for us as sort of new economy opportunities. One of the big um, advantages I remember in the free trade agreement with China mm. discussions that we used to have with Andrew mm. Robb around mm. the cabinet table were the services were so important because mm. if we get in the aged care services into China, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. Exactly. We're looking after our own, which we're talking millions of people. True. You know, it would make an enormous difference to our economy back yeah. here in Australia. So it won't just be about national security, our, our international outlook, and no. it won't just be about regional stability. I think it's also about dealing with some of these global uh, environmental health issues and, and the ones that we have a, a, a big, I think, level of experience in is how we manage oceans, how we manage the reef. But it sort of goes to things like illegal fishing and mm. things like this, which is massively important to Pacific peoples because that's basically stealing their livelihood mm. as well as, you know, um, rapaciously um, ex- um, exploiting our oceans. So this isn't some, you know, greeny thing or anything like that. It, it is just common values, and which says the, look after uh, the place. The Pacific Don't, Patrol Boat Program yep. is fantastic. 21 boats. It protects fisheries. Protects their fisheries, mm. protects them from poachers, yeah. environmental vandals. Yeah. It makes an enormous difference to little countries like Tuvalu, you know, get wiped out by some True. hideous new environmental thing that was mm. bought there by a, an illegal fisher. Mm. You know, they don't have those quarantine setups no. that we have here in Australia just because of mm. revenue and finances. So helping them in that practical way makes a big difference. Now, mm. you've been marvellous with your time because mm. you're the Prime Minister, so you might have a few other things to do. So I'm very mm. uh, grateful that you've given us some time. But it would be remiss of me not to talk about a couple of things over the last um, 12 months. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the you becoming Prime Minister and then winning the election is, and I'm interested in your comment on this, is whether the media and the Labor Party couldn't really see you because they were so sure hmm. that we couldn't possibly win the election. Hmm. They were so certain that the Malcolm Turnbull being replaced was the end of the road for us that you, were, you never really got 
that level of we have to kill this, kill Bill, kill Bill's <laughs> movie, but this one was kill Scott yeah. because they were so certain the election was already in the bag. Do you think that was a big advantage for you? Well, yes, in mm. short. But I've always been happy for my political opponents to, to underestimate. Mm. And I, right next time. I rarely, if ever, make that same mistake. And it's important. And, you know, at the election, I thought carefully uh, about what I was going to say that night. And, uh, you know, I talked about I believe in miracles, and you know I do. <laughs> I believe in miracles too, by the way. Um, but I also talked about how good is Australia because I thought it was a statement of optimism about Australia and, and you know, where we're heading as a country. And I thought on the election people basically voted for themselves. Mm. What I mean by that, not was uh, for their own sort of own you know, personal interests or things like that. They decided to back themselves because that effectively was the choice at the election. It was what we were saying, and that is at the end of the day, we really back you. We want you to keep more of your own money. And that we're a great country. We're a great country and we're going to be greater. And how's that going to happen? By backing you. You know, I remember um, driving uh, my children to school during that period and you'd listen to some of the radio mm. um, reports and even my children would say, God, you know, the world isn't that bad. Mm. You know, you'd hear one terrible story about Australia after mm. the other. Yeah. And even my children would say, God, Dad, it's all, it's all bad news. And, of course, the answer is, no, it isn't. Australia's not broken. It's a news great flash. country. It's a wonderful country and I wouldn't change being here for anywhere else in the world. And, you know, one of the privileges you have in this job is you sit around a lot of tables where a lot of people representing a lot of the places and I don't want to swap places with any of them. Mm. And I get a particularly unique view on that. And, you know, Australia isn't broken. It's a great country and we don't agree with those philosophies which says it is and, you know, government is basically a, a way of mending it all the time. No, the government's actually the process of making it stronger than it is. Of course, there's always things to do better. Mm. But the bottom line is I'd rather be here than anywhere else in the world. Bingo. Now, there wasn't a light bulb moment, I don't think, in your prime ministership where you suddenly thought to yourself, um, I, I've got this, I can win the election. I, I don't want to reveal any private conversations, but I... We know each other very well. My sense was that from the first day you got this job, which you didn't seek, you thought, I've got X number of days, X number of weeks, X number of months, X number of question times, and I've just got to do each one. And there'll be times when I get thrown off, of course, by what things are beyond my control, but at least I can do everything I'm supposed to do to try and you know keep this government in power. Mm. So... Was there ever a light bulb moment even during the election or did, was it just the same? Because you made me do the leadership calls every morning <laughs> at 6am, if you I remember did. rightly. I did. And I, I kind of felt you weren't like getting I, was, out easy. I was hanging up my gloves. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, just, was it just from the beginning that's exactly that same sense of focus? Well, I, I just don't let myself get carried away with things. I'm quite a practical person, I think, as you probably know. There's a challenge. Here's a plan that I believe addresses that challenge. So I'll just focus on implementing that plan, and uh, and then the then the, the outcomes follow from that. And if the plan doesn't work, we'll try a new plan. Well, that, that, this is right, but <laughs> I was I was confident that we had worked together the right plan, and that plan was to say to Australians, "We're backing you." At the end of the day, that ultimately I believed Australians had a greater sense of belief in the future of the country and themselves than they did in this idea that somehow you know, Bill Shorten had to come and save it. Um, and I didn't think they thought that. And they certainly didn't want to pay for that solution um, with what was being asked for. So um, that was a, a natural instinct I had about where I think Australians were at. And that proved to be right. And, you know, when I've been asked this many times, how did I feel afterwards? Well, I, I actually felt relieved. Mm. I felt relieved because 
I'd been asked to take on a very important responsibility, not just for our party, but for the country. And I believed that had we not been successful, I would have greatly let the Australian people down. And so I was just pleased we didn't. You've talked about me being Defence Minister and so on. Do you think I would have made a good PM? <laughs> well, Christopher, I, tell me if this story is true. I, I think uh, during the course of the campaign, I was often asked about uh, religion and religious the- theological questions. And I said, well, you know, I'm not running for Pope, I'm running for PM. Now, m- m- maybe you should have run for Pope, mate. Well, that was, of course, my first ambition. Was this to is what I understood. So this story is true. <laughs> it is a true story. So why would you have, why would you have uh, confined your aspirations? Well, the, I wanted to be the Pope and I used to talk to Father Mullins about being a priest. Yeah. And he's a Jesuit priest, of course. He's still yeah. alive, Father Mullins. And yeah. he said, um, you know, by about year eight, he said, you know, realize, of course, Christopher, if you become a Jesuit priest, yeah. you can't be the Pope, which, of course, has turned out to be untrue, by the way. Yes. Because the current Pope, yeah, Francis, yeah. is a there Jesuit. There you go. There you go. You were misled. I was tricked even then yeah. by the <laughs> Jesuits. Thwarted. As thwarted. <laughs> and I said to him, well, that's certainly not happening. I'm not, gonna, <laughs> not bloody becoming a Jesuit priest if I can't be the Pope. That's the whole point. You could get over the celibacy I but said, not become Pope. I planned it. Exactly, <laughs> I planned it. When I become a parish priest, then mm. I become the archbishop, and then I move to Sydney and become the cardinal, then I get to the conclave. And the, once I'm in there, I said, no one's going to be able to hold me back. He said, right. I said, well, that's off the card. So I thought about it for about a year, and then I decided I'd be prime minister instead. Instead. Well, look, you know, politics is always a, a function <laughs> of opportunity and the the opportunities you have to serve wherever you do. And, I mean, having you having served as a cabinet minister for many, many years, I mean, there were I only... Enjoyed it very much. For that last term, you know, there were only a handful of us who'd, who'd served that entire five, term. Yeah, five. and there's four, four today. Mm. Um, so it was, it was a privilege to serve together, mate. It and uh, I wish you all and Caroline all the best and the kids. I hope they're sending a lot more of you these days. They are. It's yep. great, actually. Yep, they'll, they'll want to send you back soon, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.